Listeners of the Elevate podcast know we frequently discuss the qualities of strong leaders. And one of the most important qualities for sure is effective communication, especially with clients and customers. That's why I highly recommend Economist Education's new course on business writing and storytelling. This interactive online program was designed by senior editors from The Economist, a leading source of independent journalism known and respected for its writing style. Economist Education provides online executive education courses building on the expertise and analytical rigor of The Economist. These courses are two to six week online programs designed to empower business professionals like you to thrive in a changing world and workplace. And they come with a three month digital subscription to The Economist to support your learning. Economist Education has a great way to stay ahead in your career, and I have a special offer for you to get started. Get 15% off any course from Economist Education, only available by going to my exclusive URL, education.economist.com elevate, and enter my promo code elevate at registration. This offer ends March 31st, so don't wait. For 15% off, go to education.economist.com elevate and use promo code ELEVATE at registration. You're listening to the Elevate Podcast, and I'm your host, Robert Glazer. Join me as I talk to world-class performers about how they build their capacity and reach greater heights in leadership, business, and life, and how you can do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. This is another edition of our new segment called Weekend Conversations. Each week, I'll take a deeper dive into an article or interview I shared during the week, generally a Friday forward, and we'll discuss a little bit more about it. And joining me today to help me with this is Mick, the co-producer of the Elevate podcast. How are you doing, Mick? Doing well, Bob. How are you? Good. So I think we decided we're going to be talking about yesterday's Friday forward beat and switch. And as usual, you've got some questions to uh, kick us off. Yeah. So basically, the story of this Friday Forward centers around your experience taking an Uber ride in San Francisco and talking to your driver, which got you thinking about the business model of Uber generally. So the, the big concept is what you call in the piece sustainable pricing. And it's an approach to pricing that ensures healthy margins for the company. Why is this such a salient concept now of all times? Yeah, I we're coming at well first. So the story was I, I took an Uber from San Francisco. I think I was going about twenty minutes, and it was like fifty five dollars on a Sunday or something like that. And I was thinking, wow, that seems like a lot. You know, generally I don't know. I have this sort of price per distance kind of metric in my head for Uber or for Lyft or otherwise. And then I always chat with the drivers. I like learning about their business model or what they're doing, or do they like morning rides? Do they like evening rides and. You know, the driver is like, I just can't, I can barely make money anymore. And I'm thinking, well, I think this is expensive. He can't make money anymore. That's not a great combination. And, you know, I, I've been seeing about this or hearing about this. It's hard to, when you've had something go on for 10 years, and let's say you're 30 years old. And so most of those years are when you're out of the college in the workforce, you've never seen what came before it. And we've talked about this a bunch, but the last decade of basically free money or cheap capital just enabled all kinds of things that are not normal from a historical standpoint. And so what was valued was just top line revenue growth and how fast you could grow. And so companies were willing to lose a lot of money to uh, acquire customers. You know, if they made $300 in revenue, they'd 
spend $400 on them and hope that they could make that up one day. And so what's interesting was, you know, they, they priced their services at levels to, to have that growth. It's not just ride sharing. I mean, think about, I mean, how many people now are and missing the days of the cable bundle? Like I can't, you know, <laughs> the hundred dollars in subscription fees a month in addition to the internet that I need, or, or I'd love to have some of my software back and not be paying cloud service fees every month you know, for something that's now four times the cost of what I could have bought the software uh, for. So grocery delivery, you know, a- another one. It was super fun when it was free, but but not as fun when it costs more. So we're, we're seeing this in all these industries where they're now like, if they can't figure out how to make money, then they're out of business. The problem is making money totally changes the value proposition that they attracted the customer with in the first place. So I want to double click on the market forces that cause these pricing hikes that you're talking about. And you know, you talked about the end of cheap capital and everything like that. Uh, there's been so many stories about the rise of interest rates over the past couple of years, which has led to a yeah. pullback in investor capital, which revealed the unsustainability of a lot of company pricing. The thing that I find puzzling is that this was always unsustainable and many of these companies were always unprofitable. I'm curious why you thought that investors were willing to accept this in the short term that really became kind of long term. Was there a realistic plan to become profitable for most of these companies or was it a mirage? I think there are a couple of things. So one is you start to learn about money and economics and interest rates and stuff. You know that when when interest rates are extremely low and people can't get a risk-free return on their money – they're willing to take a lot of risk on future profits. So they're willing to bet on no profits today for more profit, like a higher return tomorrow, um, which they're not willing to do when you can get 5% risk-free money in the bank. So that's the first problem. So it pushes people towards more risk and future profits because, again, when interest rates were a quarter or or 0.5, you weren't making any money anyway. And then I think a lot of company leaders and investors assume that all markets will work in this winner-take-all philosophy uh, in a marketplace where if you are the biggest, if you get yourself to be the Uber or the Airbnb and you have to do it quickly, that uh, you will win. And then you can frankly control pricing. um, And that is kind of winner-take-all. So when you take those two things combined, the problem was everyone was running that same playbook. And the reason why Facebook and everyone else did so well on advertising because people didn't care if it worked and they were buying it indiscriminately because it was totally fine to lose $300 on on a new customer or pay, you know, $400 for 300 in revenue which is is sort of incinerating money when you think about it. And look, there's sometimes when you'll pay for a customer uh, up front and you hope to make it back on lifetime, but people were paying these kind of lifetime values up front. So I I think that notion of uh, when interest rates are are really low, people are willing to just invest on future profits. And then that ties to the assumption that the largest category winning company in an area will have pricing power in the future. The problem with that is, again, that premise is based on the fact that you'll have economies of scale or you'll have uh, competitors go under other things that let you control pricing that doesn't really take into account whether the customer will just not want to use the service because of the price threshold and it being fundamentally different than um, what they did before. So a perfect example. And, and I never understood why people 
fell in love with food delivery. It is not a sexy industry, uh, you know, in the, the food delivery and the cooking and the shopping, like billion dollar, like scooters. Like these aren't sexy industries with great margins and good capitals. I mean, scooters are a great example of it. I think $5 billion invested in scooter companies. That's all worthless. But but let's go back to, so it was covid and a lot of food delivery was coming out and, and it was cheap and it was free and, and we loved, you know, doing it. And my kids would order, you know, whatever. And great, we would let them. Well, then it moved from 5% to 10% to now there's so many fees in 20 and 30%. And now I'm like, you are not ordering food for a 30% premium. Like the middle one is a license. Like go pick it up, uh, or go get your bike and go get it. So what was totally, uh, you know, I was willing to do at five or 10%. Now it would have to be like a last ditch, like I'm stuck at school. I don't know how I'm having dinner, you know, for me to want to pay a 30% delivery premium on a hamburger and fries. And if that's what the company needs to make money, then we have a fundamental problem because I, I loved it at 10%, but they lose money on it. I hate it at 30%, but that's where they make money. Well, that's an awkward tug of war to be in the middle of. I think that a case that comes up very frequently is the Amazon comparison. And you'll see a lot of thought leaders sharing things like Amazon didn't make a profit until X year. They were in business for this amount of time. And obviously, the big difference between Amazon and a lot of the companies you just talked about is Amazon found a way to become effectively a utility for a lot of people that they literally could not give up no matter what the price was. Why do you think so many founders are determined to be that Amazon that becomes the utility, even though the odds are so low? Well, there's two important things. So we had, you know, our, we had David Heinemer Hansen kick on our off our podcast season, and you know, he he really he has a line on this that's really famous that I love. There's an Amazon or a Facebook or something like this once a decade, like just like there's a Michael Jordan or or, or LeBron James or the next person. And like that company is allowed to move money because it, it lose money because it invents a category and invents an industry and investors allow it to do it and, it and it sort of wins and it dominates and it's the leader in a brand new category. You know, the way he talked about it with businesses is like that that's the it, it's the equivalent of like you tell the, the kids who aren't going to be LeBron James to stay in school and play basketball, but get your degree um, because the chances of you becoming the next Michael Jordan or LeBron James or Tom Brady is infinitesimal, but everyone acts like they're going to. And, and I think that's the, the fundamental um, problem with that strategy and figuring out how to be profitable, how to make money, how to be sustainable um, is probably you know, a, a better longer term choice for most people because they're just chasing odds that are not likely to be them. Hey, Elevate listeners, whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info. The ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. 
Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash elevate. Fast forward to the end of 2024 and think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. It's designed by real people for real conversations. I've tried Babbel. It's fun, it's interactive, and in just a few minutes a day, I could see that it was making a difference and helping my comprehension and retention. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com elevate. Get 55% off at babbel.com elevate, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com elevate. Rules and restrictions may apply. So every so often, you and I have gone through pricing exercises for something that you've released, you know, courses, for example, uh, other things like that. And you once said something that really stuck with me that really relates to the message of this article. You said that rather than cutting price first, try to show value. Why is that so important? And how do you think businesses can effectively show value for the price they charge? Yeah. So David also in his interview also said, you know, if you have product and you're trying to get to profit, the missing P is, is price. And I think a lot of companies haven't, if you're not using price to figure out what people value or what they'll pay for, you know, a lot of the grocery delivery have actually figured out that what a lot of, you know, it's actually the the brands that'll pay a fair amount of money to get in front of their clients, what's called shopper marketing. And that's how they make a lot of their money. If you aren't willing to charge people, they might value something totally different. They might actually be more willing to pay uh, for something else that you offer than what you're doing. But if you don't test that, if you don't put that premise out there, you're, you're potentially fooling yourself. Again, you're, you're growing and growing and you think you're just going to turn on the profit switch and um, it just doesn't work that way. And you're not going to, it's not going to flip overnight. I think the other problem we have is we have a, a generation now of business leaders of 10 years that only know how to grow the top line. They don't know how to grow the bottom line and sustainable. And and look, not everything in life is is about profit. Um, but I like the quote that says, but without profit, you're, you're, what is that? It, it means your clock is running. Like eventually you're going to need more money. And it becomes a little bit of a Ponzi scheme where if you can't convince someone to invest more money, it's not like you can flip that switch. So uh, it's a little like oxygen where you've heard the phrase, like it's not, it's not the point of life, but there is no life without it. So without sustainable profit, like there is no life for a business and continuing to raise money and raise money and raise money as you're losing money only works for a, a couple of people. The other thing I want to go back to, to your last question, because I, I meant to say that it just came back to me. There's also a difference. And I was part of a company that obfuscated this and did this wrong. So I understand it. But when you're growing, if you think about if you operate stores or single unit franchises and you, and you nail a model, right? It's a $2 million revenue model and it makes $200,000 a year. And you're like, God, I have the perfect template. Well, 
it's gonna you're gonna lose money as you open more of those, right? You're gonna open the next one and it's gonna get profitable. Then you want to open three more and you're all but you have unit economics that work. You know that you have a profitable store, but obviously you're gonna lose money. So I think for Amazon and some companies, they they actually had a profitable core business, but then they were launching new stores and new regions and and doing stuff. And so you had to look at that. I worked for a company that never figured out how to make money on one store and opened a whole bunch of different stores and tried different things and never had the formula. That's what you don't want to do. So some of those companies that are losing money, I think they have the unit economics figured out to make money. They're just, they're just opening more, more stores. They're, they're doubling down. Um, but, but that's where you need a really, that's fundamentally different than you lose money on every product you sell. You know, there's an old GM adage, uh, what we lose on each car we make up in volume. Um, and that that doesn't tend to produce a lot of success. It's funny because I was just reading the new book from Morgan Housel, who I know that you're a big fan yeah, of, awesome. same as ever. And he basically told a similar version of that story about Starbucks, where Starbucks was highly lucrative, good business model. And then they just started opening, going from like a few hundred extra stores a year to literally thousands of stores a year. And they overextended themselves, even though the initial model was good it still takes cash right you still run out of cash doing that yeah exactly and so i want to talk a bit about pivoting and what you were just saying about like leaders who only know how to grow and they don't know how to necessarily make that pivot to sustainable profitability things like whether it's raising prices whether it's finding ways to be more careful about cost structure how do you think that the businesses who have been unprofitable for a long period of time can find their footing in the new era of sustainable pricing. I think a lot of them can. I mean, I've read I've read some really interesting analyses. There's a gentleman I'm going to forget his name. He publishes these case studies on on LinkedIn on these direct to consumer companies, um, and I think you've seen them. And they just can't. Right? They they are they are losing money. The growth is slowing. It's so in their DNA, and you just they just haven't been able to flip it. And, and you see them going bankrupt, and, and you realize that, again, lots of marketing leaders and sales leaders and executive leaders just don't know how to do this. They don't know how to bootstrap something or to get scrappy. I mean, I, I, I've seen so many incredible speakers and founders and CEOs of different companies that have you know gone on to build these incredible brands. And whether it was you know, Stonyfield Yogurt or Honest Tea, and they just had these stories of super scrappy marketing. Like they're like, we only had Honest Tea did this thing where they built stands in each city and put like all kinds of tea out for free, and then put a money box out and said, please, you know, pay for your tea or your suggested donation. And then they did an index on which was the most honest city, and it just didn't cost them that much money. And Stonyfield figured they couldn't. They gave out cups of yogurt to everyone riding on the L in Chicago one weekend that got them to what they had to, because someone said they were going to have to pay $100,000 in marketing to get the same capacity. So when you have like scarce resources, it forces you on the sales and marketing side to be a little more scrappy. And then on the core pricing side, you're just not afraid to, to charge the customer and find out that, you know, they don't, they don't value this. I mean, even over the years, we found, you know, in launching different newsletters or otherwise, like, what do people value? What are they willing to pay for? Maybe they say, look, I'm, I'll pay the $50 for the description, but I, it's not because you do this. It's because you do this. Oh, well, then maybe I should do two of those and not, and not one of those. So that conversation with that customer, that discussion, again, if I was a, if I was a grocery delivery or food delivery, you know, I'd really want to know, like, 
what is the customer willing to pay? How much do they value this? What else could I do for them? And, and is that fundamentally work with the amount of money that I have in my economic model? Hi, everyone. If you're not a subscriber to Harvard Business Review, you're missing out on a wealth of leadership content. Widely acknowledged as the leader in business leadership information, Harvard Business Review provides information, tools, and practical advice on leadership, management, and strategy through the hbr.org website, their print publication, and their incredible podcast. Premium subscribers can also access a selection of Harvard Business School real-world case studies and scenarios that provide business leaders with the learnings from how business leaders manage their business, their team, and themselves. When I need a source or data that I can trust for one of my articles, HBR is my go-to. Just this week, I referenced one of their articles about the efficacy of required diversity training, which had the most data behind it by far. While much of Harvard Business Review's content is available for free, after signing up at their site, subscriptions to unlimited content start at just $10 a month. Go to www.hbr.org slash subscriptions and enter promo code ELEVATE right now to take advantage of this great offer. Again, go to www.hbr.org slash subscriptions and enter promo code ELEVATE to learn more about this great opportunity to help manage your career and business. We have a really interesting example of this happening in real time with streaming, which is obviously discussed in the piece. But a lot of these companies followed a very similar playbook that was largely pioneered by Netflix with artificially low pricing, permission of password sharing, all of that which lowered revenue but led to wider market adoption. And even if not everyone using Netflix or HBO Max was a paying customer, it elevated the brand because it felt like they were in every house in America. And like the biggest show on Netflix, something like Stranger Things, became a true water cooler entertainment piece. Yeah, It it seems like Netflix has actually been making a reasonable pivot into a more sustainable model through adding an ad tier, through raising their prices a little bit, through cracking down on password sharing. And they've rallied in part because I think that they have a dominant market position, not quite to the level of Amazon, but more so than their competitors. But I think others are kind of lagging behind. They don't have that dominant market position. They're fighting for second place in a lot of instances. Yeah. How do you think that that type of situation tends to shake out where there's a lot of companies that may not have a chance of getting the dominant market hold and they are trying to switch to sustainability? Netflix, a lot of people don't realize Netflix made some of the biggest pivots of all time for a business. And they did the things that most businesses aren't willing to do that someone else did to them. So they were a DVD return swapping company. And while that was still a very lucrative cash flow business, they were like, the future is not this and we need to get into digital you know, distribution. And so they did that and they sort of, uh, they kept the cash cow, they didn't kill it, but they reinvested in the new business and understood that that wasn't going to be the future. And then actually, when they when they mastered that business, they looked around and remember Netflix used to be what you could get everywhere else. It was more like Hulu. You know, if you see a movie and they said, "Oh, there's not going to be much of a competitive advantage left in just having the same shows as everyone else and having the description. We need to be an original content." And they became like one of the biggest buyers of content, and they did that. And as you said, when they started to see saturation in the subscription tier and everyone else had, you know, and they were always advertising free doing advertising. They said, well, we're, and they had a huge slowdown. We're going to really 
uh, hurt ourselves if we don't appeal to the customers who want ad sponsorship and there's a lot of dollars and they pivoted to that. And Netflix has just been really good at that kind of creative destruction and willing to go where they see the customer going and make those hard decisions. I think they they have that pivot in their DNA versus a lot of the people who are are just sticking with the model. I mean, the, the problem with streaming right now is that a, you can't have 10 of them, right? I mean, it just starts People to add try. up. For, People Someone's going to come out with that streaming bundle. Um, but they were actually so successful, I think, a lot of the big ones, acquiring tens if not hundreds of millions of customers at an incredible loss. So again, paying $400 for $200 in, in revenue, there was not a lot of people left to acquire. And once the market got tired of funding those losses, it was almost impossible. How do we get how do we get more customers and pay half as much on our advertising and have them pay more for the product? Like that's just an almost impossible task. So uh, you know, a lot of the stocks and the companies in Disney or otherwise that just, you know, they dominated in streaming. Now they're looking and saying, we don't we, we, if you're not making money on streaming, a product that's fully digital, then then you've got a problem if you haven't figured out how to because in, in the case of Disney, right, it's all their own content. So they're not even paying a lot of people to, to license it. And now you're seeing this, everyone teaming up and coming out with bundles. And it's just so funny how it all kind of goes full circle. As I mentioned, the cloud too. Like I, you know, I used to buy, uh, I have a couple real estate things and stuff. I managed through QuickBooks and I would buy it every five years and it was $200 and I would use it on both accounts. And now I have to pay $20 a month for, you know, that it's not, it's not a better value proposition. So I even wonder if we'll see people, you know, wanting to move away from subscription back to ownership. I'm not sure any of the companies will let them do that. Um, but it's getting harder to get people. I, I mean, the product side of subscription has totally fallen apart. People are like, I don't want a subscription to the shampoo. Like, I'll just buy it when I need it. With everyone fighting for attention these days, how can you get your business to stand out and connect with customers? It's easy. Get Constant Contact. Constant Contact's award-winning marketing platform has helped millions of small businesses stand out, stay top of mind, and see big results fast. Constant Contact makes it easy to promote your business with powerful tools like email and SMS marketing, social media postings, and even event management. You'll reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and communicate more effectively to sell more, raise more, and fast-track your growth. Constant Contact's writing assistance tools and automation features help you say the right thing at the right time, every time. Plus, you can send with confidence, knowing that your emails are actually reaching your customers, thanks to their best-in-class 97% deliverability rate. Constant Contact was actually the first email marketing platform I ever used almost 20 years ago, and it's a testament to the product's quality that it's still the standard for email marketing today. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help define the right professionals for your team faster and for free. Any candidate who's looking for a job is going to be on LinkedIn. And LinkedIn isn't just another job board. It's a vast network of more than a billion professionals, and many like myself use it every day, which also makes it the best place to hire. LinkedIn gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else while making the process easy and intuitive. Hiring is easy when you have that many quality candidates. 
So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Small businesses are wearing so many hats and might not have the time or resources to hire. That's why 2.5 million small businesses use LinkedIn for hiring. Post your job for free today at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. It's, it's really every so often I get, frankly, it feels ridiculous to use the term anxious to describe it, but I think about the massive amount of music I have through Apple Music that I just don't own. And if I stop paying, I'll just lose it. And I don't know, it makes the arrangement feel so tenuous to me in a way that I find kind of unnerving, honestly. Right. Yeah. You don't, it's not your albums anymore. It is a weird, it is a weird concept. So, yeah. And so that actually, that relates to another question, which is about the broader economy and economic sentiment. And you talked about how if something is a certain way for 10 years, there's going to be a lot of people for whom that's all they know. Yeah. And, you know, like I, for example, I'm, I'm 30. Uh, and so I, I basically graduated from college when Uber was at its peak and like the prices were unbelievable and streaming was so cheap. And right. all of, yeah, there's yeah. a joke that by the time a, a millennial got through the day, they had lost like two hundred dollars for for all these companies. Um, by the time they had done all their money losing services, yeah. And the, there's a writer for the Atlantic named Derek Thompson who basically talked about like the average the average millennial will take an Uber to work or take like a bird scooter somewhere. They'll get their groceries delivered. They'll get Postmates for dinner. They'll get They'll watch Netflix and just being touched by all of these subscription services, many of whom were offering artificially low pricing due to this business model that we're talking about. Yeah. And he called it the millennial lifestyle subsidy and basically <laughs> said that that's yeah. over now, which first of yeah. all, great term. But second of all, I think he's right. I'm totally wondering true. if you think when we're in this environment where People argue a lot over whether the economy is doing better than people think, worse than people think, whether there's data that says one thing, but there's sentiment that's worse than the data. Do you think that this type of price hike on so many visible services that are used by a lot of young professionals in cities who drive a lot of the social conversation, do you think that's contributing to economic pessimism in a material way? Yeah, I think it's look, no one likes to go backwards. And, you know, I am I've got some years on you. And, you know, if I said to you, you know, two percent, like seven percent mortgage is cheap, you'd be like, that's expensive. And my parents would be like, seven percent's not cheap. Fourteen percent mortgage is expensive. That's not expensive. So the economy will adjust to the higher rates and not free money, but there'll be some pain going around with that. And I think people who have have built their uh, lifestyle around that, right? If you think you're waiting for a house till mortgages go back to two percent, it's probably not going to happen. Now, maybe house prices fall, maybe some other adjustments happen, but I but I think that is a a real problem, and it may be that some people get frustrated with those brands and do things differently. And you know, people tend to remember when the next one comes around, they don't they won't do that again. Um, a lot of people really do feel like the rug's been pulled out of them and and they feel entitled to that price again i, I got to come back to scooters because like it's just the dumbest thing ever right i the, you talk about businesses that that you know where you rent and people say they love it well they love it because the cost that they were given does not the cost of running a 
business of of all the injuries and picking these things up and charging them and going and it's super capital intensive. Like it doesn't have any of the dynamics of like an attractive uh, investor uh, business. And so, you know, while everyone loves their scooters, they're, it, it, I'm, we'll see. Do they like? They might buy a bike if they find that the scooters are twenty dollars a day and not five dollars a day. So, um, once some of this stuff settles down, I think some people have to have the the guts to charge what it actually costs. And you'll some people will adjust to that, and some people some people won't. Um, there's still plenty of people who order, you know, these delivery services with a twenty or thirty percent premium now. Um, and they're willing to pay it, but there's certainly a whole bunch who aren't now that the price has been established. Yeah, well, it's about you don't have to make everyone your customer. You need to make enough of your ideal customer your customer. Exactly. Yeah. So the the quote of the week is from an unknown author, and it really fits the conversation we're having. If a deal sounds like it's too good to be true, then it probably is. What drew <laughs> you to that? Yeah, we talked about the B2C implications of this, right? If you're getting too good of a price, like what you're gonna pay. I think it's it's worth talking about the B2B implications. And we see this in in our business, right? We have a competitor uh who's very known for uh giving prospects six months free. Um, and the way they do that is they just completely overstaff their teams and it usually creates a really bad experience. And I've seen this over years with procurement departments where they just enjoy beating people down to the point where there's just no margin. And this is not a good outcome as the buyer of a product or service. So sometimes it's the supplier trying to get your your attention with the low price, but sometimes it's the buyer. You know, you should not want your customers to not be making money in a B two B world. That's just it's not going to end well. They're either going to have to not be able to offer the service because eventually, why are you going to lose money? Or they're going to start cutting things behind the scene or cutting quality to make it work. So I fully appreciate what procurement departments are tasked to do and to do, but I don't think you want to do it to the point where it's a zero sum game. So, uh, you know, nothing is ever really free. It's, it's just a matter of, of who's paying. And sometimes I think we'd be better off focusing on getting, not getting just the better price, but getting, figuring out how to get more, more value for, for both sides involved. Yeah. It's sustainability needs to be front of mind for the business itself but i think also like you said if you work with a vendor who doesn't charge you any money you got to wonder how long the vendor is going to be in business to give you the service you're becoming reliant on yeah is that is that what you really want you really want the person not to make money they have people to pay they've got bills to pay like it just it just seems like the wrong focus and and i think not getting charged an egregious amount of margin is is good um but but uh, yeah, sometimes when you nickel and dime, you're really just hurting yourself at the end of the day. Well said. So thanks, everyone, for listening to our latest episode of Weekend Conversations. If you want to check out the post that we were discussing, uh, go to robertglazer.substack.com and look for the Friday Forward titled Bait and Switch. Uh, keep on the lookout for future editions of Weekend Conversations, which will be on your feed on Saturday morning, except for next week when we'll have a Thanksgiving special episode. And if you haven't subscribed to the show, be sure to follow or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Until next time, keep elevating.
Hello, Elevate Podcast listeners. I wanted to let you know about my friend Darius and his amazing show, The Greatness Machine. The Greatness Machine is one of the top-ranked educational and business podcasts in the country, recently ranking top five in the entrepreneurial category on iTunes. Here's why I love Darius and The Greatness Machine. It really comes down to a few things. The Greatness Machine has amazing guests from the likes of sports icon Gabby Reese, worldwide news sensation Amanda Knox, FBI hostage negotiator Chris Voss, and tiny habits expert and author BJ Fogg, to NHL Hall of Famer Chris Pronger, and hundreds more. Darius keeps it real. I always learn something new, and I have a few laughs. And he always also asks great questions, and is a really entertaining and engaging host. The Greatness Machine is where you get to be a fly on the wall and listen to Darius and his amazing group of guests talk about how they got to where they are today and hear stories of people who have lived their passions to create greatness in the world and doing so despite the odds. So if you want to be entertained while learning from some of the greatest and most accomplished people in the world, this is definitely a show for you to check out. Subscribe to The Greatness Machine today on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. 